You're listening to The Brook in Madison, Alabama. Well, it's good to be with you today. Um, Before we dive into the sermon, I have something exciting to share with you. Um, A few weeks ago, I stood up here and told you that our pastors and elders, we had a meeting back in August, and one of the big things that we spent time talking about and praying about in that meeting was it had been two years since we put our property up for sale. And it was really time to figure out, okay, Lord, what's going on here? Um, What do we need to do? Are we not doing something? Um, But I walked out of there with the action item of it's time to talk to Mr. Crunkleton and get down to business. And so I came into work the next day with the plan of emailing him. And when I went to do that, he had already emailed me and said, hey, Brian, we have somebody very, very interested in the property. Fast forward to this past Monday night and our pastors and elders met with Mr. Crunkleton for about two hours. Um, We have someone that has made an offer on the front 3.75 acres of our property. And uh, what I will tell you this morning is that the size of their offer would bring us to a place where we were almost be able to pay off all of our debt. And let me just hear glory hallelujah for the idea of being debt-free. My mom gets excited about these kind of things. Y'all need to get with her. Um, But here's what I'm going to tell you this morning. Um, Tomorrow I'm going to be sending out an email to you to kind of go further in depth with this. Um, But what this will do is it will not only give us an opportunity to not only almost pay off our debt, but probably do that very, very quickly. Um, But it also gives us the chance to come back to the table and really ask the Lord, what do you ultimately want us to do? Like, we could really, really give great consideration to staying right here where we are um, in those circumstances. And so my email tomorrow will give you a lot more information. And two weeks from tonight, we're going to have a Q&A right here. Uh, because I know that there will be unanswered questions and things that you want to know. We want to answer all those questions. And I'll also tell you that two years ago when we voted, we essentially voted at that moment. We authorized selling our property. Um, But the pastors and elders are in complete unity that we want the church to be unified over this decision. And so the week after we have that Q&A, we're going to vote on whether or not to sell that portion of our land. So be excited, continue praying about what God is doing. Obviously, none of that is in concrete or stone yet, um, but what a great, great place to be in God's timing, not ours. And um, so look for that email to come tomorrow. Okay, well, let's dive in here together. Um, A couple of years ago, I think it was, I, I really, time's kind of blurry for me now, um, at some point over the last couple of years, my wife decided to build a table uh, for our house. Like we had this little Walmart table in our breakfast area, and we usually had more people at our house than we had spots to feed, especially with our missional community. So I came home one day, and Morgan, with the help of Savannah Silver, they're in the garage, sawdust is flying. I'm like, what in the world is going on? They built this table. And if you've been to our home, you've seen this table. And on the one hand, I will say that if you come in and you're real scrutinizing, maybe you're a not nice person, you would find some what I'll call unique characteristics to our table. 
I will assure you, there is not another table just like it anywhere on the planet. Amen. But here's the thing. The table is really not significant. It's what happens at the table. It's the wonderful things that we get to consume at the table and the laughs that we have a couple of times a week as a family. Uh, It's the meals with our missional community around that table that are so important. Well, this morning as we continue moving through the tabernacle and the instructions that God gave to his people, we come to the table of the bread of the presence. And what I believe that you're going to see as we read through this this morning is that the table really isn't the thing that's significant. Um, If you'll turn, we're going to be in Exodus 25. But going back to the tabernacle, let's remember, God made a covenant to dwell among his people. Um, God ratified or kind of put his stamp of approval on that covenant by calling Moses and Aaron and the elders up the mountain and said, I'm going to allow you to eat and drink, to dine, to essentially celebrate in my presence. And then God called Moses further up the mountain and gave him instructions to take to his people. And we saw last week in Exodus 25 at the beginning, those instructions were, build me a sanctuary. So here's this tabernacle and within it, you're going to build a sanctuary. Within the sanctuary, you're going to build an ark. And within the ark, you're going to place the law, which is a reminder of your sin. But then on top of the ark, you're going to build a mercy seat that will cover the ark. What's the purpose in all of this? Well, if you take your finger and stick it there in Exodus 25, but then turn one more book over to Leviticus. In Leviticus 26... Beginning in verse 9, listen to what it says. God says, I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you and will confirm my covenant with you. Verse 11, I will make my dwelling among you and my soul will not abhor you. And I will walk among you and will be your God and you will be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt that you will not be slaves. And I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. So the big picture going on here through the end of Exodus, through all of Leviticus, is God came to dwell among his people. But within that big picture, if you will, um, there are some very small details that we don't want to miss. Um, God gives these very specific, explicit instructions over what you're to do, how you're to do it. Um, We obviously don't want to miss the significance of, of what any of those things are. So we need to be able to know how do we best interpret and understand these kind of details when we come to them. On the one hand... We don't need to be obsessed about reading Jesus into everything. 
Now you may say, wait a minute, Brian. Well, just last week you said the whole Bible, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, it's all about Jesus. And you are absolutely right. But we don't need to be consumed with the idea of placing spiritual significance or allegorical meaning over every single word in the scriptures. Example, if you go further here in Exodus and read more and more and more about the tabernacle, there were crossbars that held it up. Well, don't get to that and go, oh, crossbars. That must be God foreshadowing the cross. Nope. Crossbars were just the best way to construct the tabernacle so that it didn't fall down. Don't feel like you have to read Jesus into everything. You may have heard the story before about the Sunday school teacher who was trying to get her kids to say the answer. And she kept saying, um, what's brown and furry and has a bushy tail and climbs up trees and stores nuts. And they're all sitting there looking at her. And finally, one brave kid in the back raises his hand, says, I know the answer is Jesus, but it sounds like a squirrel. We don't have to read Jesus into everything. However, where there is significance and where God was pointing forward to Christ, we don't want to miss it. So how do we go about this? How do we best interpret and identify those places? How do we practice the big fancy word that we've talked about over the course of this year? How do we practice proper hermeneutics, right theology? How do we rightly interpret the word of God. Well, there's two principles that we can kind of live by. The first one is this. There are many, many times when the Old Testament has symbolic meaning completely on its own, in its own original context. Um, Now, in that case, we still need to ask, how does this or does this relate to Christ? But there are times when the Old Testament right there has meaning on its own. Go back to the ark. God said that the top of the ark, this essentially is going to be where I rest my presence. This is going to be the earthly representation of the throne of God. The lid is called the mercy seat. Why? Because the law is inside reminding us of our sin. And that lid called the mercy seats where the blood will be sprinkled, reminding us that yes, in Christ later, but even in those moments when the sacrifice was made, God said, that's enough for now. So everything about the ark taught God's people even then um, that our sins not only need to be, but are atoned for by a blood sacrifice. So when we, when we read the New Testament, obviously we realize this is pointing forward to Jesus, but it still had meaning in its own context. But so now let's go back to that though. Sometimes the other principle is that the New Testament will unlock, if you will, the meaning of the Old Testament. Scripture helps us interpret Scripture. All throughout Exodus, I'm hoping some of you have noticed, man, we go to Hebrews a lot. That's right. You don't really read Exodus very well if you don't find yourself migrating back and forth into Hebrews. Hebrews 8, 9, and 10 go into great lengths of telling us 
that we had those things. We had the tabernacle. We had the sanctuary. We had the altar. We had those things as a shadow of things to come in Christ. Those are the words from Hebrews. It goes on to tell us and explain to us how the tabernacle is connected to Christ and the access that we have to God through the sacrifice of Christ's blood. So with those principles in mind, um, let's take a look at the table of the bread of the presence. Exodus 25, beginning in verse 23. God said, you will make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits will be its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You will overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it. And you will make a rim around it, a handbreadth wide, and a molding of gold around the rim. And you will make for it four rings of gold and fasten the rings to the four corners at its four legs. Close to the frame, the rings will lie as holders for the poles to carry the table. You will make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold and the table will be carried with these things. Are you, are you seeing the pattern here? There's a whole lot of acacia wood being used on everything and we're covering it with gold. All right, verse 29, and you will make its plates and dishes for incense and its flagons and bowls with which to pour drink offerings. Guess what we're going to make them out of? Pure gold. But now verse 30. And you will set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. At this point, I think it would be really, really helpful for us to maybe get a visual of the tabernacle. Okay? We've got a picture for you this morning that I think is a pretty good um, if you like color and simple things, this is a pretty simple drawing. You'll notice up here in the right that this is a kind of skewed view of an American football field as if there's another kind of football field. And then below it, you have, okay, so this is comparatively the size of the temple. To give you an idea, if you turn the temple this way inside a football field, you could probably get like three tabernacles in a football field, all right? But here's what I want you to pay attention to. Within the temple, in the very, very far back, you have what would be called the Holy of Holies. And this is where the ark would have rested. But then there was a veil, a curtain, that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place. And within the holy place, you would have found the altar, the lampstand, and that's where the table of the bread would have been located. Now, a great question is, like, what is this bread of the presence? What does bread of the presence mean? It can really only mean two things. One is that this is bread that is in the presence of God. Or the other option is that God is in the bread. The former is way more likely. Okay? The reason why it's called this is that this bread is in the presence of God. Remember that the Ark of the Covenant would have literally been 
a few feet away. Yes, it would have been separated by the veil, but it would have been right there behind the veil in the Holy of Holies. So the bread then was to remind the Israelites, specifically the priest of the presence of God, just a few feet away. But it was also to remind them of God's gracious provision. And it did this really in two chief ways. First of all, remember that God ratified the covenant with his people by inviting Moses, Aaron, and the elders up the mountain to eat, to celebrate, to drink there in his presence. Okay? He had them sit down in his presence and they consumed a meal. So when the priest ate the bread and drank the wine in the tabernacle, it was a reminder of the covenant that God had made with them and the people. The priests were allowed to come into the presence of God to eat. However, keep in mind and remember that they could not go all the way. Only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies. Don't forget that. Second, remember that when Israel first left Egypt, it only took like a couple of days and they all had like a Brian Mayfield episode. They all got hangry. They were hungry. They were angry. They were whining. They were complaining. What are we going to eat? Where are we going to get food? And what did God do? God provided them bread from heaven. If you look at Exodus Chapter 16, verse 14, God says, behold, I am about to rain bread down from heaven. And that's exactly what he did. They came out the next day. The ground is covered with it. They pick it up. They have just enough for that day. And then it happens again the next day. When God provided Israel with bread from heaven, they were supposed to place some of that manna within the ark. So then... The bread of the presence was also likely a reminder of God's gracious provision for their physical needs. God has met our spiritual needs. God has met our physical needs. Israel was in slavery. God delivered them. Israel was hungry. God fed them. So using our criteria and our principles, there is immediate Old Testament application and symbolism here with what we've read. The bread symbolizes, the bread reminded the people that God is promise keeper, that he is protector and provider. Israel needed to remember this, and so do we. God is faithful. But as we look forward into the New Testament, we also see some very, very clear connections to Christ. The practices of the New Testament, uh, as the Lord's Supper, for example, we need to remember that these things don't show up in the New Testament without precedent. Um, In other words, like the disciples, when we read in the Gospel of John in John 13 that they gathered for what we now call the Last Supper, and that in that meal, Jesus instituted what we now call the Lord's Supper. Jesus and like Peter and, and James and the, the fellowship committee within the disciples didn't get together and say, hey, you know, we should do like a meal or something. 
Do you remember why they had this meal? It was Passover. And, and so they were following the customs that were already there. Remember, do not forget, Jesus was a Jew. Jesus did Jewish things. He kept the customs and the laws of the Old Testament. Jesus did not invent the Lord's Supper, but instead what he did was use the meal that was already in place to show them the precedence that was set and what it all meant. Because see, remember, in the holy place where the table of the bread was, there were 12 plates or bowls of bread, one for each tribe of Israel. When Jesus sat down for this meal, how many disciples did he have? He had 12. He did not choose 12 randomly. And he took that bread and it would not have been lost on them that see, God had said, here's the covenant that I'm making with you, Moses, Aaron, with the elders, eat and drink in my presence. I'm going to dwell among you. This is the covenant. We now call it the old covenant. It would not have been lost on the disciples that Jesus stood up that night, took the bread with the disciples and broke it and said, this represents my body that will be broken for you. This is the covenant of my blood. This is the new covenant. They would not have misunderstood what Jesus was saying. Now, did they fully grasp it? No. I guarantee you, all 12 of them were still sitting there elbowing each other going, do you know exactly what he's talking about? I don't have a clue. Four days later, they would. Actually, a day later, they would. So the bread of the presence was a reminder of the old covenant and a foreshadowing of the new covenant. And this leads us to the final connection I want to make this morning of the bread with Christ. Turn with me to John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, we have this story that we call the feeding of the 5,000. We know that's actually not an accurate title of this story because Jesus fed way more than 5,000 people. There were 5,000 men, which means that with women and children, there were probably well over 12,000 people there. But Jesus feeds all these people. He takes five loaves of bread, two fish, feeds all of them, plus there's how many baskets left over? 12 for all the disciples to eat also. But as you can imagine, as Jesus did so many of these things, there had to be moments where he faced exhaustion. And he said to the disciples, go get in the boat. We're going back over to Capernaum. Jesus was born in Nazareth, or excuse me, he was born in Bethlehem, but he was raised in Nazareth. But when he started his ministry, Nazareth, they rejected him. Jesus set up home base in Capernaum. So the next day, everybody starts looking for Jesus. Take a look with me in John chapter 6, verse 24. 
It says, so when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum looking for Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, what are you doing over here? Why'd you come all the way over here, Jesus? And Jesus answered them, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do you know what Jesus just said to them? He said, I know why you're looking for me. It's not because you saw all the miraculous evidence of who I am and what I can do. You're just hungry again. You want more bread. Go buy your own bread. Jesus is saying, you need to figure out why you're looking for me. Verse 27, don't labor for the food that perishes but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. And then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Jesus is saying already right there, You can't work for it. You've got to believe I'm going to do the work for you. Now look at this. Verse 30. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Can you imagine Jesus being asked that question the day after he took a kid's lunch and fed like 13,000 people with it? So could you maybe do something, Jesus, so we'll have some verification that you are who you say you are? Didn't you all just cross the sea to come find me because you believe already? They're like us. Believe, doubt, believe, doubt. So verse 31, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Hey, Jesus, maybe you could give us some more bread. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, It wasn't Moses. Hey, I heard what you just said. He gave them bread in the wilderness. Don't you dare think that he was Moses that provided the bread. Okay? It wasn't Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will not hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. Verse 48, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. It temporarily sustained them, but they're not here anymore. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus says, I am laying down my life. The sacrifice I make for you will give you everlasting life. You will never hunger again. 
Friends, when we celebrate as followers of Christ, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we remember the sacrifice that Jesus made. We remember the sacrifice of his blood shed and his body broken for us. That being said, we do not literally eat the body of Christ or drink the blood of Christ. We've talked about this before, but there's a Roman Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation that literally preaches that when the priest blesses the bread and the wine that for believers, for the people of God, it becomes the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. There is absolutely no biblical evidence or justification for this belief whatsoever. The bread represents the body of Christ that he willingly laid down for us. The bread on the table, in the presence. It symbolized God's fellowship with his people, that God said, I will dwell among you, that he invited them into his presence. The bread reminded them that God knows our needs, every single one of them, and that he can be trusted to meet those needs. The bread encourages us to remember that our needs are always being put before the throne of God. The table of the bread of the presence was just a few feet away from the throne of God. Well, right now our Savior is at the right hand of God interceding for us. But the bread, finally, it reminds us probably most importantly of our great need for the bread of life. Our true, real, desperate need is for the bread of life. If you go back and you think about the tabernacle, and I I told you, don't forget about the veil. Remember that that veil is close to the presence of God as the bread was. That veil separated it. But what happened the moment that Jesus Christ died on the cross in the temple in Jerusalem, the veil was split and torn in two and it fell to the ground because Jesus' death removed that barrier between us and God. When Jesus died on the cross, the veil was torn in two. So now go to Hebrews chapter 10 with me. And let's once again read Hebrews 10, 19, understanding what happened in the most holy place and then what happened as Jesus died on the cross. Hebrews 10, 19, therefore, brothers, since we now have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, through the veil, that is, through his flesh. It goes on to say, then let us draw near to God with faith and confidence. Let's bring this home. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will not hunger. 
if you think about things in larger terms, where was the bread located in the tabernacle, in the temple? It was basically right in the center. It was in the holy place. It was in the temple. It was in the center. Well, now that Christ has sent the Holy Spirit to dwell within us, where is the temple of God located? It's within us. Jesus said, I am going away that I can send the Spirit to dwell within you. The Apostle Paul tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Friends, if Jesus is the bread of life, and Jesus is also the Word became flesh, Jesus is the living Word of God, and the bread belongs in the center of the temple, then the only conclusion that we can come to is that the bread of life, the Word of God, must be at the center of our lives. It has to be. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. Moses says to the people, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We'll turn to Matthew chapter 4. In Matthew chapter 4, which we, we just read recently, Jesus was led into the wilderness by the Spirit. And Satan comes to tempt him. It says in verse 2, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry. Amen to that. And the tempter came and said to him, hey, if you're the son of God, then command these stones to turn into bread. Jesus, if you're hungry for crying out loud, make yourself some bread. And Jesus takes the word of God and sticks it in Satan's face and says, man doesn't live by this bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. If Jesus Christ is the bread of life, if he is the living word of God, then the bread of life and the word of God have to be at the center of our lives. Jesus is the living word of God. He is the bread of life. Friends, do you know the significance of the table of the bread of the presence? None. Zero. I don't care if it was made out of acacia wood and overlaid with gold and had fancy poles that you could carry it with. It was a table. The significance was what was on the table. The significance was what took place at the table. If you remove the bread, if you remove, more importantly, the presence of God, all you have is a table. That's it. So let me ask you the question. Are you feasting on the bread of life? Because see, through Christ, God has invited you and I to the table. And says, I'm going to give you my spirit. And I'm going to give you my word that you and I might have fellowship. Are you feasting on the living bread of life. The veil has been torn down. 
you and I have been invited to come. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will not hunger. I am the living bread. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this morning we thank you that because of what you did on the cross that we can boldly approach the throne of our great God. Lord, we thank you that you have taken our sin and Lord, even though our hearts, Lord, we come Stained and in complete ruin, you wash us white as snow. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you broke that bread with your disciples that night, knowing that the next day it would be your body. Church family, every day that we wake up, We, we have an opportunity to determine who and what we're going to live for. I just want to encourage you ask God this morning to give you a desperation for his word Let's ask the Lord, God, would you give us such a hunger and thirst for more of you? In just a moment, we're going to sing and declare the truth of who God is and what he's done and in those moments if if you need to come to the foot of the cross or the steps and make that an altar um, we invite you to come when we close our service here in just a few minutes Um, Some of our pastors and elders will be up here at the front. If you need someone to pray with you, or more importantly, if you need someone to share with you what it, it means to put your faith and trust in Jesus. But Lord, in these moments, we thank you that you are the bread of life and that in you we find hope and joy and purpose Lord we pray you would be honored and glorified
Let's stand together. Thanks for listening to The Brook. If you'd like more information about our church or what it means to follow Christ, you can visit our website at thebrookchurch.com.